Greetings and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that looks at my handpicked stories from InfoSec and technology and why they matter. Put out the show in two forms, the podcast, which you're listening to now, and the companion newsletter, which has all the stories, notes, and links for each topic. You can subscribe to the newsletter at danielmeisler.com newsletter. All right, let's get started with episode 46. Lots to cover this week. So many stories, uh, wrote a bunch of blog posts, so uh, tons to cover, but I am trying to get these down to 30 minutes. The last few, or at least several of them, have gone uh, over an hour, and I was sort of struggling to get it to an hour. So for numerous reasons, I'm trying to get it down to 30 minutes. Um, Maybe I'll talk faster, maybe I'll do fewer stories, but uh, I feel like it's kind of an infringement on your time to try and ask for an hour every week, so going to try to get it to 30 minutes if I can. All right, jumping into the news, InfoSec and technology news. Yahoo announced a breach of 500 million users' data, and that's just an estimate. Uh, they're saying it was a state actor, which uh, to me is code for basically uh, it was unavoidable and we should not be blamed. <laughs> uh, when you look at the Yahoo breach now, Uh, You look at LinkedIn, the Adobe breach, and like tons of others. I think the lesson here, the takeaway is just assume your stuff is out there and rotate your passwords constantly. Uh, Use a password tool if you you don't have good schemes. You, You have to either have a password management tool or really good schemes in like two or three layers. But uh, you've got to rotate them regularly. They have to be very strong and turn on two-factor wherever you can. It, the, the new sort of concept here is just assume you're compromised, very much like in uh, enterprises. So Brian Krebs got hit with a 620 gigabit per second DDoS attack after reporting on his DDoS story. Um, Akamai kicked him off of their service. That's in quotes. Um, really what they just did was, uh, he was on their service for, um, for free. It was pro bono and, uh, he just kept getting melted and melted. And then finally he got hit with this one, which was almost twice as big as anything they've seen before. And they're like, Hey, look, uh, we cannot do this anymore. Um, I mean, if he would have kept being under that load, it could have cost them millions of dollars just to protect his website. So he left and he went to a different project called Google Shield, which actually protects online journalists. And so he's there. The website is up. He's put up a new post in the meantime. So uh, very cool of Google to have this project. Uh, Just another reason that Google is kind of cooler than Apple and other companies because they do have projects like this. So uh, hopefully the site stays up and uh, wish him best of luck. Education is leading ransomware infections, followed by government and then healthcare. So the way I imagine this is to think of like two axes, right? Where one axis is showing security maturity and the other one is showing a requirement for uptime. Whenever you have a high requirement for uptime and you combine that with low security maturity, whoever's in that quadrant, that's where you're going to see the most ransomware, right? Right because they don't know how to fix it. 
They have tons of problems. They don't have the staff or the money or the know-how or whatever the reason, but they also need to produce and work every single day. So they're more likely to pay ransoms. So doesn't surprise you that those three industries, education, government, and healthcare are the ones getting hit. A Chinese team has remotely hacked the Tesla in multiple ways. So we're able to control the steering, the brakes, the accelerator, unlock the doors, control the dashboard, open the trunk, and various other computer things. Um, they couldn't change the color of the car. So that was locked down. Uh, the hack required the car to be connected to a malicious Wi-Fi access point. And Tesla has already released a patch that fixes the issues. They are very uh, proactive about their security. These are some pretty major flaws, but it did also require the man in the middle between uh, or through that Wi-Fi hotspot. So that's slightly better, but still fairly frightening. So Bruce Schneier thinks that uh, groups are probing critical infrastructure in preparation for a DDoS campaign against that, uh, that critical infrastructure. So he's basically hearing from a number of sources, which he can't really talk about, about sort of long sustained campaigns ramping up um, against various types of companies that, that host particular pieces of infrastructure. And he's seeing, or they're seeing them sort of start, ramp up over a course of hours or days, and then suddenly stop. And then like hours or days later, it'll come back and pick up where it left off and then just keep ramping up. And it's, it's like it's waiting for uh, to find out when it's too much and when it's able to push it over. So it's like they don't want to waste too much bandwidth on something that doesn't take much to knock down. Um, and supposedly it's happened in lots of different places, pointing to like a, an overall campaign. And that's what he thinks is happening is they're sort of probing for a DDoS event, um, which I have my own theories on. I'm not sure if I put that into a story here or if I've done a blog post on it yet, but um, really interesting stuff from uh, Schneier. So Snowden was slammed in a House committee report. Consensus is basically building on the opinion that only a small part of what he did was noble and that uh, so we revealed that we were spying on our own people um, and people were like, yeah, that's definitely, you know, whistleblowing. Um, but what doesn't come out is some very large portion of what was released was not about whistleblowing or internal stuff at all. It was actually external spying on foreign governments, which is what the NSA is there to do. And this is evidently why so many people on the inside and so many people in the military area and the intelligence areas are against what he did. It's the fact that he burned so many air quote, legitimate intelligence operations abroad and hurt the U S's ability to gather intelligence. Um, so a lot of them sort of take their hat off and say, yeah, absolutely. That internal stuff was scary. And there are other people who've tried to blow the whistle about that stuff as well. So they said, yeah, absolutely that. But he crossed the line majorly, and that's why they're against him. And that's why a lot of people now in the infosec industry are, are coming out and saying, hey, you know, he's not going to get pardoned because he doesn't deserve one because he did all these things. Um, 
uh, I wrote a post about it, which I'll talk about later, but the bottom line is I'm not sure we have all the information. I'm hesitant at this point to even make an opinion um, because I, I feel like uh, I've, I've just been misled in various directions and it's because I don't have all the information. And especially when you're dealing with classified stuff, you should be really hesitant to come down strong on something when you just don't know. Cisco releases more vulnerabilities related to the shadow broker event. So I just recently did a, um, an article was one of the contributors to the article um, at tech target where I basically said, yeah, you should prepare for more, sort of um, news about the shadow broker stuff because the odds are they have way more vulnerabilities. And sort of the reporter was asking, you know, what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is you move to a zero trust model where with the giant tech stacks that we have, especially in the enterprise, you have to assume that there's some sort of backdoor. There's just so much surface area that could be exposed to O'Days. You just can't... Uh, you can't rely on the stuff. You can't know for sure that it's secure. So you have to kind of treat every little piece, every little segment as hostile relative to the next one over to whatever degree that you can. Assume compromise, do heavy detection, heavy response, and uh, and go from there. It's just, just the world we live in. Uh, team develops a Wi-Fi technology that can effectively read emotions. This shit is crazy. So it's like Wi-Fi. I'm not sure exactly what frequency. I think it's like five gigahertz. But this is a broadcast, an RF signal that is broadcasting, but it's bouncing off your face and your body and everything. And based on the bounces and bases on based on the interpretations coming off of it, it can tell what your emotions are using machine learning and, of course, the, the bouncing um, or, or the, the visual of your face based on the RF combined with analysis of what that visual looks like. So imagine, well, again, that's, that's how I end up going over an hour imagining things about these stories. But, um, <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. So imagine you walk into a room and the room is a place where uh, – it's being monitored. It's being monitored for terrorists, for example. So they're looking for high stress. They're looking for people who are freaking out about whatever. And they can sort of pick out a terrorist from the crowd or whatever. All sorts of problems with false negative, false positive. Um, someone can be good at hiding their emotions and they go through. Other people can be stressed out because they just lost a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. So all sorts of possibilities there, but holy crap. There, I mean, you could have monitored areas, scanning your face, you don't even know it. And somewhere on a screen, you're being registered as the emotion that you're feeling at that time, if you're not properly concealing it. Fascinating stuff. The Google Now brand has been killed off and replaced with Google Assistant. And the new um, chat app, <clears throat> can't remember the name of it, Allo or Alio or something like that. Um, has, has, is the first app that's come out. So it's a chat app, but you can actually use Google Assistant to interact with it. Uh, I think it's a great move. It's basically Assistant is what you would think of. You would not think of now, like you don't contact your now person, you contact your assistant. Um, and I think it's what people will want in the future. So I, I think it's a good brand change. 
Researchers maintain a light photon quantum link across six kilometers. So they basically have a, a cable stretched across six kilometers, although I heard seven. But you can basically, and I'm, I'm going to mangle this because it's not my area of expertise, but it's the concept from Ender's Game where you basically separate photons um, at, at a very primitive state. And as long as, as far as you can separate them, a state change on one side will affect the other side instantaneously. So in Ender's Game, this was called the Ansible, and it's how they did direct instantaneous communication um, over vast distances, you know, across the universe or whatever. But really cool. They just did six or seven kilometers. Google is launching its own Wi-Fi router. It'd be about $129, and it will have longer range than most routers. Um, it'll also have integrations with smart home features like, you know, lights and uh, if this, uh, if this, then that, and various other like, you know, air quote smart integrations. So um, that'll be pretty cool to see Google entering that market. All right, next one, blog posts. So this is uh, original content here. I wrote um, post called Authentication's Last Mile. And this is basically about the hard problem of validating when you make a request to something like a bank or uh, in the future, universal demonization, which I'm still trying to finish my book about. The idea is what if someone takes your phone? What if someone takes your fingerprint off of something you just authenticated to? And they're using various things to pretend that they are you. How would you defend against that? And to me, it needs the solving of this last mile of authentication. Uh, last mile is a reference to going from the street to the house when you're wiring up like broadband or, or some other sort of wiring. And uh, in this case, it's going from the human person themselves, a validated true authentication of the person to the request and the, and the requester. Or, or to the request and the resource, right? So I, if someone is requesting access to something that I own, I want to know that it's them, not that it's someone who has their password or someone who has their phone or someone who has their fingerprint. They can have all those things and not be them. I want to know it's actually them. So what this talks about is an identity validation service where you are actually streaming at all times hundreds of factors about your actual being. And you're streaming these to an identity validation service, right? You're streaming your heartbeat. You're streaming an iris scan. You're streaming the way that you walk. You're streaming your voice print, your fingerprints, all these things and it's hundreds of things, dozen, between dozens and hundreds, maybe even thousands, who knows? But you're streaming all of this to that service. That service is the expert on your ID. So you can actually twist your ankle and now, you're, now your walk is messed up. Or a woman puts on high heels instead of whatever, sneakers. And now her walking is messed up relative to the enrollment. But that's only one part of the algorithm and all the other ones are more the same. Um, or maybe you get sick and now your voice is messed up. Um, but this identity validation service then becomes the expert on, on making sure that you are you, 
Now, here's the cool part. When you go to authenticate to do something, to make a bank transfer, to pay for a coffee at Starbucks, when you go to do those things, your request to that service, and this is in universal demonization terms, right? You're making a REST request to the service. Well, it is signed by the IVS. It is signed by you, but also by the IVS. And the receiving resource says, oh, I trust the IVS to know that this is actually that person because they're receiving these hundreds of different validations. Now, you can't just send those hundreds of validations to Starbucks because they're not an expert on that. They wouldn't know what to do with it. So the IVS is the one who does the claim and they assign a certainty level to it, right? They assign a certainty level to it and then put it out there. So really cool concept. Um, next one, Forrester's. Oh, no, that's the next section. So uh, next one here, mobile pay is nice, but what we really need is mobile authentication. So that one I wrote before the one I just talked about, and it was sort of hinting at that, but I hadn't really thought through it completely, um, but it's talking about the same problem. Next one, uh, some thoughts on blind and out-of-band vulnerabilities. So this one is about uh, basically some technical problems with the naming of vulnerabilities. So the difference between blind, uh, basically what spawned it was I saw someone talking about a blind SSRF attack. And I'm like, blind SSRF, hold on. All SSRF is blind. So server-side request forgery, you make a request to target A, and target A makes a request to target B, but you're not able to interact with target B. So you make A do it for you. So A requests Etsy password, from target B in some weird way that allows it to extract it from it. And then A gives it to you. You could talk to A, A can talk to B, you cannot talk to B, but you still get the Etsy password from B. That's SSRF. Well, it's naturally blind because you're not actually directly sending from A to B, and you're not directly sending from yourself to B. So it's it's abstracted, it's blind. So. That's the type of thing that just, it irks me. I don't know, maybe because I'm German. I have no idea. But it just irks me when a term is applied to something because it sounds cool. Um, same with uh, out of band, um, blind. There's a bunch of others as well. Um, so basically, I talk about how to break these down. Uh, Cross-site scripting, for example. Um, you have stored, you have reflected, you have blind. Um, maybe blind is not the best term there. Maybe, well, aren't they all blind, <laughs> cross-site scripting? Um, it, it's, it's very strange, right? So, I mean, what, what's a really good example of, of blind? So blind would be SQL injection. Blind SQL injection in contrast to error-based, right? You send it in. It's in band, first of all, because you're sending it via web web interface. You're getting back via web interface. In error-based, it's very visual, uh, visible, right? Non-blind. If it's timing-based and you don't actually get it back an answer, it's just yes or no, and there's very little time discrepancy between a yes answer and a no answer, 
Okay, that's definitely blind. That's blind SQL injection. Makes sense. But if you're submitting random payloads into a web app, into just you're just scatter blasting this thing with cross-site scripting payloads, and you're hoping that it gets captured by a logger or some random admin user, and maybe they trip up on it and execute it like six months or a year later. Well, maybe it gets shot off to you via some random laptop somewhere else across the world after you know it consumes a log and it shoots to you through email and you get the result of the payload. That's out of band, right? Is it blind? Maybe. I don't know, but it's out of band. So the idea is to take these blind and out of band and, and in band and whatever these categories are, take the vulnerabilities and actually assign them in, in a logical way and not be crazy about it. All right. Between two ravines predicting the future of human work. This one, that could go on for a while. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you read the link to that one in the newsletter, which by the way, go get the newsletter. It's danielmisor.com slash newsletter. It's basically got all the show notes and the links and everything. So go check that out. But uh, it, it's basically a battle between two concepts about what's going to happen to the future of human work once we're exposed to automation. So uh, one side said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I guess I am. So one side thinks that we've always been talking about how automation is going to kill U.S. jobs or human jobs, but it never happens. So now everyone's like, oh, it's going to be machine learning. It's going to be AI. Yeah, not going to happen. They always say that we just do different work. But then I make the argument, hey, wait, wait a minute. That's the same thing horses were saying to each other right before Henry Ford. And then one horse says to the other one, it's like, hey, you see this car? Just saw a car over there. And like they didn't have a horse. They didn't have a carriage. They didn't even need one. They just got cars now. So maybe we're in danger. And the other horse is like, yeah, whatever. They, they said that about this. They said that about that. I put it this way, um, Charlie. Charlie the horse. I can guarantee you they will just find something else for us to do. Like they're not going to just replace all horses with cars, right? Well, turns out that kind of happened, right? So both of those are kind of cute examples of making fun of how dumb the other side is. But which one is it going to be for machine learning and for automation and for AI and for computing in general taking human jobs. We don't know, but it's fun to sort of think about those two ravines and which one we're going to fall into. All right. We are all battle mechs for genes. Wow. These are big topics to rush through like this. Um, oh, well, it's good training. Um, so I'm reading a book called The Evolution of Everything, which my buddy Tim Tyler recommended to me. Tim Tyler is a fantastic friend, by the way. Um, he actually got me started and linked up with Ryan English, uh, which got me on at Fortify and Demand and all that uh, jazz that happened from that. Seven years at Fortify and Demand, all because of this guy telling me about cool books and he and I exchanging ideas and concepts and, and stuff uh, way back in the day. 
And uh, Ryan English had an opening and he pings me and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Are you happy? You should talk to my friend Ryan. And the rest is history. And all because of Tim Tyler. Um, anyway, we reconnected recently just talking about ideas. Guess what he's doing? He's reading books, talking about amazing, cool concepts. So now we're back on that vibe again, which is super fun. Don't have a lot of friends who like to read and, and talk about these things. Um, so it's cool to have that. Anyway, one of the first books he recommended recently was um, The Evolution of Everything. And one of the concepts in there, which I knew from reading a bunch of Dawkins stuff, like The Selfish Gene and uh, The Blind Watchmaker and stuff like that, I, I knew this already, but I had forgotten it. This thing describes really well how genes are the ones competing. They, they are trying to reproduce and survive. And you have, you know, the descent with modification concept and all that, but it's the genes who are fighting. People are like, well, what are the genes doing for the body? No, no, no. The genes aren't doing anything for the body. Like genes and genetics and evolution, they're not working for us. We are the result of it working only for itself. So the, the metaphor I came up with was we are like the giant mechs that genes have assembled to do combat with each other. Um, so we need genes are like, oh, we need brains. You know, we're going to have that. Uh, we need bodies. We need brawn, stuff like that. It's actually not a great analogy because the whole purpose of evolution or the whole concept of evolution is that um, there is no sort of design. They're not saying, hey, we need a mech. We need a big brain. Let's go make one. It just happens. And that's kind of the whole point of not only evolution, but of this book. Um, but fantastic. I recommend you go read the post. It sort of summarizes the idea, but also go read the book, which I should have put in the links. That's, that's a fail. Anyway, IOT plus SSRF. All right. So talked a little bit about SSRF earlier. So I'm proposing that there's going to be a new type of phone coming out in late 2016. Actually, no, not 2016. I would say 2017, 2018, where we're going to start seeing a lot of SSRF vulnerabilities hitting against IoT as the first surface area. Um, so basically, when you have lots of exposed surface area, which is target A, and you have lots of really juicy internal stacks, which is target B on the inside, and the attackers on the outside can only talk to the IoT and cannot talk to the inside, they're going to use SSRF attacks against the IoT devices to request sensitive content from vulnerable internal systems. So I think this is going to turn into a big thing because IoT is blowing out to billions of things and, uh, and SSRF will get easier as tech stacks are standardized. So that's just a prediction. Um, security assessment types. So this is a post I did a while back about the different uh, security assessment types. It basically lays out vulnerability assessment, pen test, red team versus red team engagement, and audit. Breaks them all down. Talks about how they're all different from each other. Definitely recommended, especially if you get in a lot of these battles with people about these at work. And finally, my changing opinion on Edward Snowden, which I sort of talked about as part of that news story up there. So I'll just 
leave the link there. And finally, recommended links. So uh, why Snowden will never be pardoned, to put that link there. For Forrester's forecast for how AI will affect U.S. jobs. Really fascinating stuff. Talks about 7% of U.S. jobs going away by 2025. I actually think it's going to be much larger than that. And I think most people agree. Recommend you check out a link called uh, Why Humans Need Not Apply, which I don't have in this list, but um, it's related. Really interesting. But still check out the summary of this four-star report. Um, it's not actually the full report because you have to buy that, but the summary is at the link. Malcolm Gladwell gives eight tips that made him a better speaker. Put that link in there. Some really good ones there. Um, how the left has become hostile to free speech. This thing is fascinating. I think I got that from Tim as well. Link to the DerbyCon talk videos. So DerbyCon not only publishes um, live streams while the, while the um, con is going on, but it actually posts all the links immediately afterwards. So this is like the day after and they're already up. So uh, put the link there. And I've got a couple of security tools here. Uh, one is Lucky Strike. It's a malicious office document generator. And another one is an OSINT tool called Datasploit. And I've got the link there. Um, pretty cool way, uh, kind of a supplement to uh, ReconNG for pulling OSINT data. And for inspiration, I've got a quote here by Robert Ingersoll. In nature, there are neither rewards nor punishments. There are only consequences. All right. Thanks again for listening. And please be sure to go to danielmiesler.com slash newsletter to get a copy of everything we talked about. And if you like the show, please pass it along to your friends. I'll see you next week.